When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you tonight, Allison? I'm doing well. I feel like I haven't really been present in a while. Or maybe I have. I don't know. (laughs) That doesn't doesn't make it seem like I've been very present if I don't remember being here. No, I felt the same. I feel like Allison hasn't been around much here leading up to the big 400th episode, which we're past now. I know. I'm sorry. My apologies. We're at, I believe this is 402. Well, happy solstice. We're recording this on solstice evening, although this was not a day filled with light. It was very rainy here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where did four episode 401 go, you might ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a patron episode. And there's big news. Big news on that front. Are you going to share or is this a secret? Oh, no, I'm keeping it secret. I'm just teasing. No. <laughs> it's a little bit different than Patreon, but for people who want to get the patron episodes through Apple Podcasts. They can do that now. Apple Podcasts have a subscription. So if you use Apple Podcasts, I think what you'll see is our regular episodes come up and then it will be populated with the patron episodes as well. And you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts. So then everything will all come up in the feed together. On Apple Podcasts. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's new. I just started it yesterday. I added about a year's worth of patron episodes there. That'll keep you going until you can upload more. Yeah. So I'm hoping to see some subscriptions there. And if I do, I'll keep adding more patron shows. And eventually I'll I'll add them all for the subscribers there as well. What I'm not going to do is populate the commercial-free episodes there for past episodes. But going forward... Oh, okay. I will put the commercial-free episodes there as well for subscribers. So if you want to help us out, now you have two options. Well, you've got many options. Yeah, you've got many (laughs) options. But if you want to help us out and get extra content. Yeah, that seems like a good idea. There's two options. There's Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And then there's the subscription on Apple Podcasts, which I think you do right through the app. Okay. Patreon's not going anywhere. I want to make that clear. You don't have to stop Patreon. Patreon's this is in be addition to, not in lieu of. If you were one of our early patrons at the lower cost level, we grandfathered that in. That's staying. If, as long as you stay at that level, you're grandfathered in. You'll get the extra shows, et cetera, et cetera. So Patreon's not going anywhere. The people on Apple Podcasts aren't getting anything. The people on Patreon aren't. So... Whatever's easier. We're just diversifying. Yeah, just trying to make it easier for people to support the show. So it's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars if you want to go that way. I want to thank everybody that came out to my talk 
at the library on Saturday. Quite a few strange familiars folks out there. It's great to see people. It's great to see Maxim. Had a nice talk. I think I kind of babbled on too long. His talk was nice and concise, and mine was... There's just so much with the Toad Road talk. There's so much to get into. I think I went a little longer than the the library would have liked me to, so apologies to Redland Community Library. (laughs) Did they do the shh, (laughs) like the library thing? I got the wind it up motion. Did you get a wind it up? Yeah, yeah. Were they done for the day? Was it at the end of the day? I think they actually had someone else coming in after us. Oh. Like somebody was coming in to talk about rocks or something after us. Well, I would have gone to that. <laughs> <laughs> but not mine. I'm not just kidding. Thanks. <laughs> what kind of rocks? <laughs> like geology or something. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah. That can be fun. Mm-hmm. On tonight's show, I'm going to be talking with Brandon from the Southern Gothic Podcast. He's got stories of the boo hag, some ghost stories, a true story of a voodoo curse, and more. Boo hag was my name in high school. <laughs> was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the names they had for me were not really that different. different. Yeah. I do remember waking up with you sitting on my <laughs> chest a few times. Yeah, yeah. Draining the energy out of me. That can happen when we're just eating dinner, though. <laughs> So I guess I should thank our patrons, wherever you're a patron, whether it's Patreon or now Apple Podcasts, thank you for being a patron. And let's go ahead and get to Brandon. We're talking with Brandon from the Southern Gothic Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. So we kind of cover some of the same ground, it looks like. You concentrate, I'm assuming, mostly on Southern Tales, right? Yeah. Yeah. I stick to everything we do is is ghost stories and dark history from kind of the, the main states. From I, I go into like West Virginia a little bit in Arkansas and, and do Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, you know, the, the classic Southern. Anything that's got a bunch of hillbilly ghost stories we talk about. <laughs> Are you located in the South? I am. I'm, I'm in Tennessee right now. I've been living here for about 20 years, but I was born and raised in New Orleans. So I learned a lot growing up about ghost stories from down there and brought it up here with me. That's a pretty fertile ground, I think, uh, New Orleans for that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's in the air, right? I mean, it's kind of like one of their shticks down there just in and of itself. There's so many. You, you walk in the French Quarter down there and it, you could stand on the corner of one of these streets on the French Quarter and probably spend three hours talking from door to door, the ghost story in each one, depending on where you're at. There's so much down there, and it's uh, it's such a storytelling area as well. It just kind of comes with the culture. Yeah, that's awesome. We have Gettysburg here, which claims to be the most haunted town in America, but I'm sure plenty of towns make that claim. But I'm sure New Orleans would give it a run for the money easily. Yeah, I know. I just I just recently chatted with a podcast. It was it's called Most Haunted City on Earth, and they're from Savannah. And so I tried to get in a little fight with them. You know, <laughs> so we could we could argue out what was their title right or wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, it depends on who you ask and where they're living at the time. I think. So, what about you? How long have you been into this creepy, spooky stuff? Sure. Well, I, I've been doing this podcast, Southern Gothic, for about five years now. So I've been doing it for a while, over 100 episodes at this point, a bunch of bonus episodes as well. Uh, and that really is was my first dabble into doing this in any way, shape or form kind of professionally. But I came into kind of this ghost world and this storytelling world as a kid. Like I said, I you know grew up down in New Orleans and had, uh, had parents who were really avid genealogists, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were the kind of people who, this was pre-internet genealogy, right? I'm 40. So, you know, this was 80s and the 90s and they were driving us around the cemeteries all the time. So we were going up and down the Mississippi River, going to these like really humid above ground cemeteries that they have down there. And that kind of was the first kind of introduction, right? Because you're hearing stories and I tell people cemeteries are, are so much fun because that's all they are, right? Every two feet, you've got another life of stories. And so that really hooked me early on 
was this kind of morbid fascination, I guess, with cemeteries and stories and death and kind of the folklore that comes with it. And my parents being genealogists, obviously, I got a little bit of the research bug. Oh, yeah. And that's ultimately what Southern Gothic is. is It's a podcast where we take the stories that maybe like your mama told you growing up and we go and we actually look up, hey, this is what really happened. And that, you know, your mama kind of like pushed out there a little more, made a little more, uh, a little more fanciful and and we like to break down stories that way and and I always say the smaller the story the better you know the one that's more local and the one that's more steeped in local lore is the, are the ones that really are the juiciest usually you know that's where my uh, at least three of my books have come from literally just digging into local legends exactly it's the most fun it's the one that it really it sits in people's hearts the most, right? Mm -hmm. Because you grow up hearing stories and it's a part of your family. It's a part of the culture. And it doesn't even matter if it's true half the time because it it has some sort of truth. It's the atmosphere of the place you're from. And, and, and I love that. And the ability to take some of these small stories from places and actually put them in a podcast and have never like left the small towns other than maybe a book like you might've written or something, right? Other mm -hmm. than other than a book from a um, from someone who's there who put it out, they've never really gone into a national coverage yet or gone into a larger medium. I love doing that. I love being able to kind of give a story a little extra push out into the wild so more people hear them, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we found that some of these ghost stories have very little um, historical basis. There's <laughs> yeah. one uh, we did, a. it was actually our 300th episode, did a whole big special on it. I wrote a book. It was like an audiobook podcast extravaganza thing, all in one big, big project we did with it. Oof. It was a place in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania that locals called Suicide Bridge. And to my knowledge, there wasn't a single suicide on that bridge. You know, the locals said people hang themselves from the bridge and this and that. And uh, I can find zero suicides that happened on that bridge. But there's spooky stuff that goes on there, including stuff that we experienced when we went out there. So it's really interesting. I think People bring energy to these places, even when the, maybe the stories aren't historically true, because they bring this energy to these places and these, these places sort of become spooky and become haunted in a sense that way. So just because it, there's not a historical person tied to it doesn't mean it's not haunted. Uh, exactly. I, that's my favorite part of this is wondering the chicken or the egg type thing, mm -hmm. right? Like you do, you you go to a place like, I, I think um, you've, you've heard of the Myrtle's Plantation down yeah, in Louisiana. Yeah. You know, it's supposed to be America's most haunted home. And it just has, it's so thick with stories. They say 10 people were murdered or died in there. And I think it was murdered in the plantation and so many different stories. And obviously there was an enslaved population there. So you know that awful things happened on this place. But, but the main story is so inaccurate and so not based in history whatsoever that it's just total fabrication for the owner. One of the owners who turned it into a B&B, &B, basically, it was totally fabricated by her as this kind of way to drum up business, right? And But yet people go there and have these experiences with the girl at the center of it. Mm -hmm. And it makes you wonder sometimes, there's so many different theories. And I, I mean, obviously everybody has them different. It makes you wonder, did the story create the spirit? Is the spirit there from one of these other people? Is it trying to just get your attention in a way that you know? Like, I know if I act like this fictional girl, oh, yeah. Yeah. then you'll pay attention to me. Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, is it like a tulpa? Is it a trickster? Like, there's just, honestly, that that next level going from the storytelling and the historical is so fascinating. And I love everyone has a different theory about it. It's such an interesting aspect of this for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wanted to mention also my wife, she comes from a genealogy family and has mm -hmm. that research bug. And when we first started dating, we, she was taking me to cemeteries with her parents and stuff. We've gone on, <laughs> yeah. we've gone on trips with her parents, family trips just to go to cemeteries in other parts of the state that uh, resonates very well. That's definitely my wife's upbringing. Uh, yeah, we're, we're weird people for sure. <laughs> it helps the research thing. It really does. I think like she's yeah. a fantastic researcher because of that, I think. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. If you know your way about, around documents like that, then it just, it, it's instantly, uh, knowing where city directories, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many what, newspapers. I mean, now there's so many digitized newspapers and a lot of that digitization started for people looking at obituaries, Yep. right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic resource. We live in a good age for research, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
So when did you move from the genealogy cemeteries to, let me see what ghost stories are hanging out in these cemeteries? Oh, yeah. Well, what kind of happened was I had left New Orleans when I was college age, right? Came up to Tennessee and was in the music business for a little while. I was working in recording studios there. So that's how I kind of came to podcasting. And um, Me too. I had always been interested in that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a natural progression, right? Mm-hmm. And it's entertainment. And I worked in country music. So all my friends were storytellers. They were all the type of songwriters. They were, you know, storytellers. And the ones that were in really into Americana, they were murdering folks in their songs <laughs> oh, too, yeah. them bluegrass songs, you know? Oh, so, yeah. uh, <laughs> so, the you know, the aesthetic was definitely in almost everything that really fascinated me and all my passion projects for a long time. But I uh, really got into like haunted tourism. And that's kind of where it started with wanting to uh, go to places and just enjoying it and looking for a reason to. And today I even do some tours here in Franklin. I work, a friend of mine owns a tour company. So I fill in for her sometimes and really enjoy, you know, telling stories out on the street, you know, Mm -hmm. and doing that. So my fascination with it really didn't come till later. It kind of came more as I got older and the the music, the music stuff kind of, it just took the next level for me and moved to this. But I haven't looked back. I thoroughly enjoy doing this. It's entertaining. It's creative. The traveling around to places, I, that's got to be the most fun of everything I do for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. So I know you do mostly ghosts, but my favorite of all the weird stuff is Bigfoot. You ever get any Southern Bigfoot stories? Oh, man. You know, I don't, I, so I don't do any Bigfoot on the show, but I'm a huge Bigfoot fan. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I say like, like my kids tease me, right? Like it's such a dad thing, right? <laughs> so I don't actually, I don't cover anything, but man, I, if my kids were listening right now, they would just got to laugh when you asked about this. <laughs> I was actually, I went to Oregon, was in Oregon, Seattle area last month in April, went up there for just not even related to, to the podcast and went to Cliff Barrickman's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Nat- his, 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 his museum. So I, I got to go out to Oregon and walk through his museum and all and spend some time out there. I mean, I, I totally nerd out on it, but I don't, I actually don't do any Bigfoot on the show. I usually stick more to the ghost stuff. I've done a couple little, like we had a little, a little bonus series that we did with some cryptids, some kind of classic cryptids where we talked about like the Rougarou mm-hmm. and we talked about some of the Popelik monster up in Kentucky, some of the more fable type stories. yeah. yeah. Rather than, you know, if you ask me Bigfoot, I believe Bigfoot's a real terrestrial creature. I don't think there's anything paranormal about Bigfoot on a personal level. But, uh, you know, they got the skunk ape down there. We got lots. There's lots. I'm in Tennessee, man. There's lots of people say he's out here in East Tennessee, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, one day when we have more time, I'll have to hit you with my paranormal Bigfoot stuff because I've written with a co-author, yeah. two very thick books on it. So I, I definitely have opinions there, but I'll save you, oh, man. I'll save you I, that rant. <laughs> I, well, I joke that, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I don't cover Bigfoot is because I enjoy it so much. I don't want to ruin it with my research. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't get enough of it. Even geez, even after writing all the books. And I thought when I wrote those, those two, I mean, they're two really, really thick volumes that I wrote with a, a co-author. And I, at the beginning of that, I said, this is it. This is my Bigfoot foot mic drop i'm done no more bigfoot after this and then by the time i finished i'm like oh i have more to say i'm gonna (laughs) i'm going back so it won't be my last yeah let's talk some stories do you have a favorite ghost story oh man well my favorite story it's it's less a ghost story and it's more a a voodoo story it's more a curse of of a place down by new orleans i got lots of ghost stories so we want to be really specific but my favorite one, and, and anyone who's ever kind of listened to some of our shows or or come out to see me tell stories live or anything knows what I'm about to tell you, because it's something we've researched probably in the way you've done Bigfoot. It's it's a story of a woman named Julia Brown. And Julia was, she lived out in a small town called Frenier right outside of New Orleans. So if you were traveling from New Orleans up to Baton Rouge, about halfway between the two out in the swamp, it's called the Manshack Swamp. And, uh, Julia, supposedly, she was a voodoo priestess. She was practicing voodoo out in the swamp. And this was the turn of the century, early 1900s, when she'd moved out there with her husband, Celestin. And in this small town of Frenier, it was a lot of German immigrants that were living there. And they were harvesting cypress out in the swamp. They were growing, of all things, they they made sauerkraut. Hmm. A very interesting community. And there wasn't any way to get there except for by railroad or by boat. 
It was that isolated of a community. And Julia lived out there. And of course, because, you know, she practiced voodoo, she became kind of a healer for this community, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because if you got hurt or you're going to have a baby or something of that nature, you might not make it all the way into New Orleans or make it up to Baton Rouge. So she was there to help and she delivered babies and was, you know, served that role for the community. And Julia, she lived there for years and years out on her property. They had She had 40 acres of land. In our own research, we found her on census records and everything and actually found out that her husband, Celestin, had gotten this land because he had signed up and fought for the U.S. Army during the Civil War. Oh, wow. And this land was his payment. So they moved out there and she was born enslaved and everything. And they move out there to the edge of town and she's doing this and everything's going well for years living on the edge of town. But at some point after her husband dies and her children move away, we're not sure what happened to her children. Uh, the town says that something changed in her. And according to legend, says so she started to sour. The relationship started to sour. Mm-hmm. Some people thought that she started to feel like she's being taken advantage of by the people there. They just expected her to take care of them for no payment or just the relationship got bad. And so she started isolating herself out at her, her house on the edge of the swamp out there. They said when people came out and they'd see her, she'd be sitting on the porch in her rocking chair and she'd kind of be like fiddling with yarn or something in the rocking chair and just kind of rocking back and forth and singing this really ominous song. She'd say, when I die, I'm going to take the whole town with me. When I die, I'm going to take the whole town with me, you know? And you can imagine, man, these, you look at me, these blonde hair, blue eyed people are out here and there's this practicing voodoo woman out on her porch saying, when I'm gone, y'all are too, right? (laughs) So they obviously, this was a big deal. They freaked out by this and they heard it and they just continued on with life. But then in 1915, at the end of September in 1915, Aunt Julia actually died, right? Of course she was going to. She was a little up there in age at this point. We don't know how she passed away or anything of that nature. But what we do know is what happened next. Because two days later, at her funeral, of course, everybody in town decided to show up, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's because she was this beloved member of the community who had delivered all the babies or whether they were just scared to death by this supposed curse and wanted to appease her soul. So, I mean, it's standing room only at this funeral and they're all there at it. But what they didn't realize, because they're so isolated, is that while they are there on that day, there is an immense hurricane that is actually making landfall outside in New Orleans oh, wow. and making its way toward them. And this is a large category four type hurricane. This is before they were actually numbered at that point in mm-hmm. time in 1915. It wasn't named after people like it is today or mm-hmm. anything, but they didn't realize this. They were so isolated. Maybe they got a newspaper warning them. I, they, I'm, we're not sure really, but they're all at her funeral. And it was during that time that the winds started to pick up and they're all there celebrating Aunt Julia or or laying her to rest and the wind starts to pick up and the rain starts to pick up. And the next thing you know, that hurricane comes full force through the town of Frenier and folks are scurrying everywhere. And the storm surge comes up. This is swampland. So of course it starts flooding almost immediately. Folks are running around. Some folks, they say, were climbing trees to get out of the, the, the water from rising and trying to save themselves up in the trees. And it was such a horrendous incident that that they say that those folks up there could hear people screaming below drowning, if you can imagine. Uh, Some families actually did get away that day. They they went and boarded the, the train and the train was able to kind of take off down the road and get a little further away out to a little bit safer spot. And I, I want to say about 20 to 30 people were able to get saved on the railroad, on the train that day. But ultimately, the entire town was destroyed, just wow. decimated by this hurricane. And overall in Southeast Louisiana, almost 400 people died on that day. Wow. Just two days after she passed away while her funeral is going on. And so ever since, Frenier has never really come back. And if you were to go visit up there, it's it's by, there's this incredible seafood restaurant that's right, right <laughs> around there called Middendorf's. If you ever get a chance to go get some seafood, you can go check that out. But uh, Frenier's basically nothing. There's a, other than other than a restaurant down there and a boat landing, and there's a small swamp tour that you can go on and actually go through the swamp on the land that she owned, oh, or, wow. or lack of land, whatever you want to call swamp yeah, land, yeah. right? And, and go through there. So to this day, they say her curses continued on. And 
over the years, that's kind of evolved over time as to us wondering, you know, did Aunt Julia really curse this? Because we have the records. We know when she died. We know two days later, this hurricane destroyed the town. Wow. We even have a newspaper article. We we're talking about newspapers. We even found a newspaper article uh, that was able that talked about her funeral and about the town coming to her funeral. So we know she was a real life person. Wow. But did she curse the town or not? And that's one of those mysteries that I've just always enjoyed thinking about and thinking about her as a person and that story of of knowing that this this woman truly existed and this horrible event existed, but where does her legacy sit with them? So uh, that's been one of my favorite stories to tell for sure. Yeah, that's a good history. one. That's really good. Yeah. Have you ever like looked for her grave or anything? So they have, if you go down there, there's a, there's a swamp tour called Cajun Pride Swamp Tours. And if you were to go and you were to take their swamp tour, they do have kind of a mock-up cemetery there, mm-hmm. but- it's not, it's, we found out it's, it's a little Disney. They put it up, mm-hmm. you know, as like a memory. So most of the people that died that day were in a mass grave that's a little further out into the swamp than you'd visit there. But supposedly Aunt Julia's casket floated away and was never found. Wow. That's great. What a, what a so, great little bow to tie on that story. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been stories here or there tying her to other things over the years. Um, there's this really interesting no sleep on Reddit. For a few years back of, of somebody talking about coming into, they were, they were down there on I-55 and they had stopped at this exit and ran into this woman and didn't name Julia, mm-hmm. but just talked about it to a T. And then of course the comments were like, oh my gosh, this is who it was. And supposedly this person that told the story had no idea. You know, so there's been some different kind of things that way. There, there was a, a bridge collapse a while back that uh, that that folks said that they could hear her as her being the one. I'm in the middle between the two. There's kind of some people talk about her of, of was she really cursing the town or possibly was she warning them, right? Mm-hmm. Because I told you this was a logging community. And so they were chopping down all these cypress trees and basically killing what the main barrier or the main protection of Southeast Louisiana for hurricanes was. So there's some speculation that maybe, maybe this wasn't her saying whole town's going to go with it. It's saying, if you don't, if you don't fix what you're doing, if you don't start being a better sewer to the land. So there's different theories in that way, but it's been a wonderful story. It's been covered in a few different places in mainstream media, but it, it hasn't really broken out much like we were talking about. It hasn't really saturated into the big, the Myrtles plantations and the, right. the Waverly Hills. It hasn't really gone into that yet. And uh, and like I said, I, I love that story for sure, especially from coming down there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's the thing with these historical figures. You know, I talk about a lot of myself and I'm always careful, like, I don't want to make a villain out of anybody that wasn't a villain. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Every now and then you run into somebody, we did a story about, um, it was a hermit in California who uh, basically they, this town decided they didn't like him and, and the sort of town fathers got together and just killed the guy. They blew him up with dynamite yeah. and uh, it's a gruesome story, but it was a complete cover-up. <laughs> like they just swept it under the rug. Guy never got justice. Yeah. And I had no problem sort of pointing out that it seemed like it was a conspiracy with that town against that poor guy. But in most cases, these historical figures, it's like, well, you know, was she evil? Because it seems like, at least for part of her life, she was helping the town. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no telling. There's no telling even if she's practicing voodoo. Right. She could have just been a, a general root worker or mm-hmm. healer. It might not have even been religion or anything, but it's a story, right? And right. W- one of the things that research has done for us and one of the things that uh, one of the my favorite parts about some of these stories that do go as deep as Julia or stories like the Bell Witch, some of these more famous ones that have been around for, I mean, over 200 years, this story it almost evolves as you look at it. So as we trace the instances where Julia was mentioned over the years, where we have these kind of an early newspaper report about her funeral, and she's just this woman who was a large part of the community. And then we get later down the line and we found some newspaper articles from the 70s and a young woman named Helen Schlosserberg, who was a survivor of Frenier of that town as a child. She was like 10 or something when the uh, hurricane hit. The newspaper in the 70s interviewed her and actually brought up Julia. And she mentioned Julia was a nice woman. Hmm. 
And she imagined that, you know, that Julia was warning them or, or mm-hmm. trying to be helpful. But then you get later on and you get into the the late 90s and there was a TV show that did it. And they made her this, I mean, cackling witch of a voodoo <laughs> priestess. Yeah. You know, it was evil as can be. Mm-hmm. And just going that way. And then there was a MTV a reality show in, in the early 2000s or something that went out there. And of course it was, you know, that evil witch that destroyed the town. Right, right. And you can watch how these things change as you kind of, each TV show takes its own liberties. Each podcast takes its own sure. liberties. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Totally. The thing about these healers, these folk healers, and we have a, a practice here in Pennsylvania, they call it powwow. It has nothing to do with Native American practice. It's sort of a, a misnomer. They think it got that name from people seeing these faith healers do this and saying, well, it looks like they're doing what the Native Americans do, but we're not sure how it got that name. But in any case, these healers, and that's what they are, and, and just like you said, it's often for communities who don't have a doctor or, or who can't get to a doctor easily. They also dealt with witches. And if you dealt with witches, like if you broke curses, then people would obviously be suspicious that you knew how to make to place curses as well. Yeah. So these yeah. folks were often held in suspicion, even though they were generally just faith healers is what they were. It yeah. just happens. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, obviously, voodoo down there in Louisiana and, and hoodoo and, and even the Gullah people over on, on the East Coast. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of suspicion around all of them mm-hmm. at that point in time. And it was such a, it was these isolated communities that, that were able to just develop over time. But that's lasted even into now, right? Remember that movie, The Skeleton Key? That came out, maybe it might be about 20 years old at this point. But, Didn't see it. I mean, even the voodoo is taking on this, these things in horror movies is yeah, always sure. bad yeah. and all of that. And uh, I've just been really poorly represented mm-hmm. when the practice itself has nothing to do with things of that nature. So it becomes another shtick, unfortunately. Yeah. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Rougarou itself is just fascinating in general because it's it's such an interesting an interesting beast or an interesting animal, whether you believe in it or not. And you know, I said earlier about how I believe that Bigfoot's a terrestrial being, and whereas the Rougarou itself is one that you've had sightings and you've had people talk about the Rougarou, but it has such a basis in old folklore and goes so far back. Mm-hmm. And just a little bit about the Rougarou. It's essentially a swamp werewolf, right? Essentially a creature that lives down in the swamps and the Cajuns feared the, the Rougarou. The Cajuns believe that it had to do where it only came out, of course, on full moons and it would go out and it would act pretty much like a werewolf, 
but it was often tied to Lenten practices and Catholicism. Interesting. And it was often often used as a way to kind of scare kids, right? You mm-hmm. know, you, as a Catholic tradition and, and growing up down there, it was, it was a Catholic territory. The Cajuns were, were from France, right? And so you'd scare kids if you, you know, you're 40 days of Lent, if you didn't give up something, you didn't follow the rules or something, you might turn into a Ruguru. And that was one way that they ah. talked about it. Of course, there was also the traditional werewolf way if you'd get bit and could turn into a Ruguru as well. And, uh, you know, and the swamp creature was like any werewolf. It would go out and hunt. And then, of course, it would turn into a person during the day. It kept a lot of traditional rules that you hear across some of these kind of cryptids and things where there were ways that you could avoid the Ruguru coming in your house, whether that was um, putting a, a broomstick or something like that, where, you know, the Ruguru would have to count all the, uh, you know, all the, the what do you call them? The, the bristles or something. Know, yeah, The bristles, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and of course it would, it would turn to dawn before you could get to it. So there were, there were things like that. You'd pour pebbles or something, and that would be ways that would stop the Ruguru. So a kind of traditional tale in that way. But of course, this is a creature that they said was hunting the swamps, just like any other werewolf. And it was that way. And it really was feared. And a lot of people have talked about it in early Cajun folklore. The way that that a lot of us now as a modern people down in New Orleans who come from that culture is is they have a they have a beautiful bust of the Ruguru or a beautiful life-size mock-up of the Ruguru at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans. So any child who has ever been to the zoo in New Orleans has heard of the Ruguru and that's really helped kind of propel this this mystery of it. But the origins of the creature itself are really tied in with Cajun culture and with this kind of history. So the Cajun people themselves, they actually lived up in Canada. It was it was French, people of French ancestry uh, who moved over to Canada. And then of course, in the Seven Years' War, they got the British took over this part of Canada, in the coastline of Canada up there, uh, and kicked the Cajuns out, kicked the French out. And they didn't know where to go. They weren't from France. Their ancestors were from France. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really have a place back there. So they ended up coming all the way down here to the humidity, if you can imagine, mm-hmm. right? You're going to get you know kicked out of Canada and you're going to go down to the swamp of all places, right? Sometime around the 1760s, if, if my history is correct. And what they brought with them is they brought all the old traditions of France. And, and have you ever heard of Labette? Out in France, it's kind of a, it was a classic werewolf character out in France. Cause in the, in the 1700s, they were having a real life wolf problem in okay. France. Mm-hmm. And this is where they kind of started creating their own werewolf stories based on their real, real world problems of wolves. And these Cajun people, while they're living, you know, up in Canada, they knew these old stories that their parents had told them about werewolves, about Labette is what they called them. And then they moved down to the swamp and all of a sudden, they're kind of confronted with this new environment and they interpret it in ways that they understood from their own culture Mm -hmm. with this werewolf. So whether or not the Ruguru was a brand new creature that they brought with them or even might be a terrestrial creature that, that was there and they could only see it through their own lens of it, it essentially became this French werewolf. And it's probably... The most infamous creature down in Louisiana. It, it, like I said, if you grow up down there, you've heard of the Rougarou and you have been, you've had nightmares over the Rougarou. We'll put it that way. So <laughs> that's fascinating. I, there's a fantastic werewolf story here that is known as the guy who documented the story, the folklorist. He's not great with German. So he called it Die Wolfmannsgrab. Misinterpreting Pennsylvania German should be Der Wolfmannsgrab. He had the, the feminine on there. But in the story, it's there's a a uh, Huguenot. So it's a French girl who sort of befriends oh. this old man that's a that's a werewolf in the story. And oh man, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know how tied the the werewolf thing was to to the French, but uh, I met an old guy when I met him a few years ago. I think he was in his seventies, and he had met some another guy. I think in the nineteen seventies, and that guy was in his eighties, and that guy actually showed him where the wolfman's grave was. So he, sh- oh, wow. I, I had him take me out there to show me this actual place. And he said, you know, back in the 70s, there used to be an actual sign there that said, der Wolfman's Grab, like here's the grave no of the wolfman. But uh, it's that sign's no longer there. It's just a field now, just a field near a creek. Uh-huh. But it was so cool. But yeah, that's totally fascinating because like 
it's this little Huguenot community amongst the Pennsylvania Dutch. And that's this, this yeah. werewolf story comes from that. So it's really interesting. Yeah. If, if anybody's ever interested in learning more about Labette, the, uh, the Astonishing Legends podcast did this incredible deep dive into the, the story of Labette. And it was these villages that were just utterly terrified of what was out there in the woods wow. and what was happening to their kids. And that's generally accepted as one of the main, how the legend came about. Now, mm -hmm. again, I will always separate at the same time. I, you know, I'm a, I, I believe in the paranormal. I believe in a lot of these things. And just because the folklore and the story looks like it's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be lined up. And that to me is what gets interesting now is, you know, you have that folk tradition, mm -hmm. but there's also a reason why that folk tradition came out. Yes. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I, and that's I, for smarter people than me to find out. Well, <laughs> I... You know, I sing a lot of traditional ballads and for traditional singers is this this sort of theory that I would argue this with a couple of them, but it holds true for most of them. Uh, a bad song doesn't get to become traditional, right? So uh -huh. carrying that over to folklore, I'd like to say bad information doesn't get to become traditional either. And these stories, in my opinion, that's our ancestors looking at this weird paranormal stuff and saying, how do we deal with this? And then passing down the information over time. And of course, it's whispering down the lane and things get exaggerated and you yeah. know, change over time. But I think there's real value in folklore, real value in it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's what I mean with the Cajuns. Mm -hmm. uh, you just described it in and of itself. Yeah. They were experiencing something. Something was scaring them in the swamp. Yeah. And they had no idea how to, what lens to put it through. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, and again, we have another uh, little creature here. It's like a like a little hairy thing, skinny. It's like three to four feet tall. And when the Pennsylvania Germans got here, they called it the Albatwitch, which means Alb is German for elf. And there's different theories as to what the rest of the word means. But essentially, they named it this, even though it was already here. The Susquehannock Indians had paintings of it on their shield and stuff. But they called it the Albatwitch. Now, if you go back to the part of Germany the Pennsylvania Dutch came from, they had something there called the Elderich or Elder Elderwitch, Eldervich, something like that. Huh. But it's obviously the same same thing. It was a different creature that was like a sort of man like bird they had over there. But my theory is like they came over here, they saw something weird. What do we call that? Oh, we'll just call it the same thing. Albatwitch is just something weird. Yeah. And we'll we'll call it that. So yeah, I, I love the way you can trace this stuff through history and it, it changes and morphs, but there's always that sort of grain of of uh history and truth with it. Yeah. Hey, you know, that's one of the things that I found in studying this one region, right, and sticking just to the south is exactly what you're saying is I find that in almost every small town, we end up with similar legends and oh, similar yeah. lore. Mm -hmm. And they're almost always, you can almost pinpoint even what time period some of them were made based on kind of what what some of the attributes of the legends are, mm -hmm. you know, and there's just all these real similarities that you see across everything. And, you know, just like you're saying, it's the same way, the same lens, the same cultural ideas. There's yeah. a folklorist up here who noted that in the 50s, which you got were a lot of stories about, like, here's where KKK people mm -hmm. hanged somebody or, or, or something like that. But by the 70s and 80s, those same places had changed to, oh, this is where a, a cult meets and, and have done satanic sacrifices. Oh, the so, satanic panic, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. it just kind of changes culturally. It's the same sort of stuff, but it just kind of yeah. changed culturally with the stuff. And for me, being a Bigfoot guy, you know, you go back to the 1800s, they didn't have the word Bigfoot. They called them wild men. Yeah. You get around late 1800s, right around 1900, it starts changing. They call them gorillas. Because at this point, the mountain gorilla has come to the attention of the West, right? People say it was discovered. But African people knew it was there the whole time. We, they, it wasn't discovered, but it, became, it came to uh, the attention of the people in the West. So now we had something to call these big, hairy things in the woods. They start calling yeah. them gorillas. Around 1920, 1930, when the monster movies come out, they, they start calling them monsters. Then they're, they're big, hairy monsters. Yeah. Stays that until Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all that becomes into pop. But it's, it's really cool just to watch. You can just see the cultural flow of these things and what people call them and so forth. Yeah, we, we have with plantations are really interesting time capsules 
for the South because, mm-hmm. you know, they've gone through so many different ways in the way that people view them culturally over oh, the yeah, years. Yeah. And they're chock full of stories at this point, right? And and all. And so when you go to one of those, it's really interesting because you have this time period where it was kind of like the palace, you know, it's the place where the royalty was. And so stories that that kind of originated in an antebellum era type kind of have their own, you know, really honor and all about that sort of thing. And then as you get later on, plantation stories that developed in the in the 1920s, 1930s had this this different look to them that really glorified this was when the grandkids of the folks who fought in the Civil War were making stories. And they have their own elements that that kind of glorified certain parts. And then as you move further in, plantations became bed and breakfasts, like I said earlier. And so now we have to have this really interesting kind of uh, palatable enough to convince people to come and sleep here, but exciting and adventurous enough with, to, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, like we, we don't want to scare them away in a lot of ways. That's what I almost see the most shifts in the stories here in the South was in that kind of late seventies, early eighties, uh, because that became such a part of our haunted tourism became such a. A, uh, a large part of that plantation and Southern ghost storytelling culture. So uh, it's, yeah, the, the evolution, it's real. It is very real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you think is the scariest story you've covered on your show? Oh, gosh. Um, okay. Just recently, I talked, since we're talking creatures, just recently, uh, I told the story of the Boo Hag which is from out in, in the Eastern coast. It's the Gullah people. So this was the, the community of people. They were enslaved people brought here from Africa. They were brought out to that Charleston, out to the Charleston area, right? Um, that kind of, uh, the sea islands out there. And they were brought specifically for rice and indigo. So they were kind of, they were considered suited best to do that. That's what they were cultivated in Africa. And so they were put on these, they were essentially meant to farm these small islands off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina, and they were really isolated there, right? There weren't a lot of white people on the island with them. They're living there all the time. So they basically were able to maintain a certain level of autonomy. And even though they were all from different places in Africa, they kind of melded this community. And they talk about this one creature that that would come out and cause problems, and it was called the Boo Hag, okay? And this particular creature, it's why folks in Charleston paint haint blue on the uh, all over everywhere, right? Because it's the blue that's supposed to stop the boo hag from coming to your house. And according to legend, what the boo hag is, is they say typically a man will experience the boo hag, a, a gentleman, he'll be somebody who hasn't gotten married, a guy who made it in a little older in life and was picky or for whatever reason, he never got married. And, and one day a woman just kind of comes walking into town and course catches this man's eye a beautiful woman and of course he falls for this woman and and he marries her very quickly and it's just completely you know caught off guard and but he doesn't realize that there's something going on underneath and and he brings her into his home and he finds you know the first night she of course cooks him this beautiful dinner and he has this wonderful time eating everything he can she's taking care best thing that could ever happen to him this wonderful woman and then they go sit in their rocking chairs after dinner and she sings him to sleep Right. And the man just falls asleep. And then later in the night, he wakes up and he kind of, she gets him to bed and he wakes up in his bed later at night and rolls over and realizes his wife isn't there. His new wife isn't in bed. Doesn't think anything of it. Right. Well, the next night, same thing sort of happens. The next night kind of notices this. All the meanwhile, he notices that some strange things are going on because in the mornings, what he's finding is that his wife is, is really She's really tired. Hmm. It's like she's been out all night, very starting to wonder where she went. And so he's starting to kind of come like wonder really what's going on here. And, and he starts asking around to his friends, but finds out that all his friends are sick, that all the men in town have just come over this awful illness. And he's the only one that's healthy. And so he's got to figure out what to do. And eventually he goes out and he finds a root worker, right? Like we were saying, the people who, the, the folks hmm. who knew about the supernatural, the folks who could help him with these problems and goes and he talks to the root worker and the root worker right away knows what's going on. So you marry this woman from nowhere and you find she's not in bed at night, but she's, there's these, these weird things where she's waking up in the morning and you never see her sleep and, or, or she's tired in the morning. You never see her sleep. And she asks him about the other men in town. Are they sick? And sure enough, he admits they're sick. And this little old woman tells him, well, 
you married the boo hag. The boo hag gotcha. And he starts to, and she starts to tell the man about the boo hag. And he married this awful creature, this haint, if you will, uh, this spirit that essentially all day wears the skin of one of her victims, a beautiful woman. But in reality, this creature inside of it opens itself up at night, takes off that skin, and it's just this hideous, grueling, troll-like monster, like just muscle, red muscle, and just beady eyes, and just little hair. And you can just imagine this this kind of ogre-like creature that's been going around wearing the skin of a beautiful woman all day and just unzipping itself at night and going out. And, and it goes out in town at night. And what it does is it finds all the folks around town and it finds the men in town, goes into their home, gets on their chest, and it sucks the lifeblood out of them while they're sleeping and goes around town and does this. And of course, it's got to get home before sunlight, right? And it's got to get that skin back on. And it does that. So all the men are falling sick because this boo hag's going all through town. And the root worker tells the man, well, you know, there's one way to stop the boo hag, right? There's, there's, there's one and only way. So all you can do is tomorrow night, I want you to go home and not eat a single thing because she's probably putting something in there to knock you out. Put some earplugs in so you can't hear her sing you to sleep and stay awake and wait. And once the boo hag's out the door, what you need to do is you need to go out and you need to get haint blue and you need to paint haint blue around every single part of that house, every entrance, every window you can possibly find except for one. Let one be open. So that way the boo hag's going to take all this time trying to find the window. And then what you need to do is you need to go get salt. And you need to go find where that boo hag has stashed away that skin. And you need to pour that salt all in the skin of the boo hag. And so that way, when she goes to put that on, you'll understand what's going to happen next, right? So sure enough, he decides he's going to do this. He's going to save the town. He goes home and he does exactly as she said, of course. He waits for his wife to to sing him to sleep, but he doesn't listen to her singing. And then he kind of peeks out. And of course he sees what happens. And he sees that his wife decides as she's taking off her skin, he watches as she just kind of peels her skin off her finger and just rolls up this skin and goes and hides it up in the attic, rolls up the skin, hides it in the attic. And she takes off out of the one of the windows. And sure enough, the man, what he does is he goes and he grabs his paint and she's outside and he's going around all the windows doing exactly as the root worker painting haint blue as fast as he can. He runs inside. He's going everywhere. He's looking for this skin and does exactly what she says of the skin. And then he just finally collapses because the night's over and he knows the boo hag's on its way home. So right as dawn's coming up, all of a sudden he hears the sound of just thuds against the window. The boo hag's just boom, trying to get in window after window. And he hears it and she's trying to get in until finally she finds he has that one little window in the basement, right outside the basement. And she finally gets through the window, sneaks through, but the sun's coming up. So she's bustling up the stairs, running up the stairs, trying to get to her skin. And he's still just sitting there in shock because he cannot believe what's happening. And he hears her upstairs as she puts on the skin of just the scream as she puts on the skin with all the salt. And the next thing you know, and of course it crashes, she hurdles herself out the window and she's trying to fly. She's tearing her skin off and her skin's burning and everything. And that's what kills her. Just like a vampire, wow. the sun kills her. Oh, and so wow. that's a that's a very traditional story of what the boo hag does. But, but the boo hag has been in the Gullah culture just for generations and generations and over 200 years and and they talk about this creature that will suck the life force out of your while you're sleeping and and there's even the saying down there if if you uh they say don't let the hag ride you mm. and that's a you know if you wake up in the morning and you're tired well you know the hag probably got to you last night right but uh that creature in and of itself and i kind of say the more folkloric story of it but if you really hear somebody tell you the terrifying horror one <laughs> It is just a, it's a vicious creature and just this disgusting kind of, that one's one of my favorite that just, it scares the kids. <laughs> we have had, you know. I think more than one, but at least one. I think we've had two uh, witnesses on the show describing waking up to the boo hag on their chest. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people talk about is the, is it real or is this like a sleep paralysis thing, right? Mm -hmm. Is this just the way they interpreted that? But hag folklore, I mean, is worldwide. Oh, sure. Yeah. This having your life force sucked out of hags that are coming at night and things like that. I mean, this is, 
this is worldwide, but the African versions tend to have this like vampiric slant that some of the more English speaking countries don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just makes it a little bit more kind of like disturbing, more disturbing than like Baba Yaga or one of those. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, that's a creepy ones. one. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Where can people find Southern Gothic? Absolutely. Yeah, you can visit southerngothicmedia.com. That's our website. Or, of course, wherever you're listening to this podcast, I promise we're there. We're on all the podcatchers from Apple and Spotify and all of those. It's Southern Gothic. All right. If anybody wants to reach out. And did you say you do live storytelling? I do. Sometimes I do live shows. So if you are in St. Louis in June, we're going to be at the, or I'm going to be at the Haunted America Conference doing some storytelling then. And I'm hoping to have, be announcing something soon for Halloween this year. I'll be kind of in a couple different places around the South. So check the website for dates on that. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say all that, all that information be on your website then. Give it one more time, your website. It's southerngothicmedia.com. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for having me, Tim. I especially like that specific, that very Southern take on horror and darkness and that Southern Gothic aesthetic. I really, mm-hmm. the crumbling New Orleans mansion, the, yeah. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I, and in my mind, it's probably all like a pastiche of some Anne Rice novel I read in the 90s, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it always seems cool. Got an announcement about the Hermit's book after this. Okay. This is a night of announcements. This is a cool photo. It is a tintype photograph. But what's cool about it is that creeper in the background you showed me. Yeah. I wouldn't have seen him if you didn't point him out to me. I think it's a fairy. Do you? Mm-hmm. Could be. I think it's the doppelganger of the little kid with the big hat. It's his mm. double. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the begin, in the in the forefront of the picture, because it looks like a, a, the same kid with a big hat, but... It's blurry enough to be some sort of cryptid. Yeah. <laughs> so this is our curiosity of the week this week. It is a tintype photograph. It's an outdoor photograph with a big tree in the background, and then there's this little lurking figure that's kind of blurry looking at the proceedings. Is that a little girl or a little boy? Unclear. I think it's... The sibling who was told, no, this you're not to be in this picture. Yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. Yeah, exactly. That's what that does <laughs> seem like the reality. Of it. Like, what are you guys doing over there? We'll call him the little lurker. Yes. Which is more difficult to say than you. Could be an Alba Twitch. Definitely. Because actually that came from a lot of photos that I bought specifically because it had, they're all from the Helm area. Oh, so this is probably, that's probably an outdoor tintype somewhere around Helm as well. Wow. Wow. I might know where that tree is if I looked hard enough. Mm-hmm. I bought it specifically because it had Helm's own fake Emily Dickinson who I collect. Yeah. Are we ever going to do a, a show on her? Sure we are. Yeah. Maybe next week. <laughs> I love Helm. Has lots of fun characters. I mean, you know, any town does have mm-hmm. fun characters. Oh, yeah. So this is our Curiosity of the Week. I will put an image of that in the show notes. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can purchase that and other Curiosities of the Week, those that are still there. While you're at Etsy, you can check out copies of my books. I'm getting restocked soon. They're all still in stock right now. We do have copies of everything, but they're getting low in stock on some. But I'm getting restocks very soon, so don't worry about that. We'll have all copies of my books If you get them from me on Etsy, I'll just sign them. You don't even have to ask. I sign them before we put them in the mailers. Got my regular books and my art books are there, including the new art book, Elzik's Farewell, that's there. The new Stone Breath CD, Grays and Orphans, is there. The Entity Drift CD, which has the ambient sounds from Strange Familiars, that's there. Got artwork there, both originals and prints. Allison has a selection of antique photographs there. And vintage photographs, Strange Familiars t-shirts, stickers, and more. Our shop name at Etsy is Lost Grave. But if you type in Strange Familiars, you should see our stuff come up. Thanks, everybody, who's been supporting us on Etsy. That's another way to support the show. That helps as well. So thanks for that. 
The Hermit Book has a title now. I have never minded the loneliness. That's a quote from a hermit. Which one? His name is Theodore Lamb. Ted Lamb? Ted Lamb. Teddy Lamb? Teddy Lamb. He was born in the late 1800s. He died, I think, in 1950 from the Midlands in England. Oh. But he looks very modern in a way. He's completely dreadlocked hair, dreadlocked beard. He looks like a modern crust punk, or like some kind of post-apocalyptic guy. The townspeople, as they often do, they make up stories about these guys. Why is this guy living alone out there on the hill? Mm -hmm. And usually it's like, oh, some girl broke his heart. Mm -hmm. So a newspaper guy went out to interview him, and he laughed. He said, no, 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 it wasn't that. He said, I used to date women when I was younger. I just got out of it. You know, I just want to live alone. And he said, he had a quote, he said, I've never minded the loneliness. And I thought, what a great title for the book. So thank you, Theodore Lamb. <laughs> for titling my book. I also did a nice illustration of him. Well, a couple, actually. Did a couple illustrations of him for the book. Have some photos of, of him in there. When are we building a hermitage in the backyard so that we can have an ornamental hermit? <laughs> can I be the ornamental hermit? Can I be the ornamental hermit? <laughs> <laughs> we had to fight over who gets to be the hermit. <laughs> like, wait, I get my own space? It's not that much closer to being finished. I did a lot of the hermits I knew had a lot of information first. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these later chapters are shorter, which are I'm finishing them quicker because there's just not as much information about these guys. But I still have a long way to go. Almost every hermit has their own chapter with a unique masthead and then a, a illustration at the end of the chapter, kind of a spot illustration. And for some of the hermits, I've done full-page illustrations as well. So a lot of artwork. It's design-wise and artwork-wise. So far, it's my favorite book I've done. I really like the artwork for the Hermit's book. I'm really excited about it. But it's got photos of almost every hermit I talk about. There's a couple in there. Uh, Irving Irvington, which I think we did on the show. I don't think he was a real guy, but the story's so great. With mm -hmm. He was a snake-charming hermit. The story's so great that I thought, well, heck, he's got to go in there. So. Print the legend. Yeah. Plus, he's right there with the Yaffle hermit, the hermit oh. of Irving Castle. Oh, okay. That's what I was wondering. Was yeah, he the same guy from Irving? <laughs> no, no. He's... he's you know, this, their stories kind of mesh in that sense and that they're in the same area. He doesn't have a photo, and then I'm going to do the Gettysburg Hermit because John and I found the foundation, mm -hmm. and Chad and I found the cave where he was living in on two different visits to that area. That one's like a really meaningful one to me. So no photos of the Gettysburg Hermit that I know of, but there'll be a drawing. My interpretation of the Gettysburg Hermit will be in there. Otherwise, every hermit has at least one photo, so you get to see what these guys look like. And then there'll be a section in the back of like unidentified hermits and hermits I couldn't find any information on. I have to say there is a look. There is a look. There is a look. <laughs> Some of them are a little fancier than others, but yeah, there's definitely a look. There's one I can't find any information. You'd think there would be information on this guy. Yeah. A Stanford hermit from the university. Oh, he lived on the grounds? It seems that way. See, I, we just need to... There's probably something in the lore of the people who go to the, to the school. I don't know. And there's multiple photos of my I only have one, but there's been multiple photos of Did you of check them. the library of the school? I did not. I checked to see if they have any free resources. Okay. I will do that. If he lived on the grounds. I believe he did. I believe that's why he was called the Stanford Hermit. So... <laughs> So, not just because he was like a rousing football fan for it. Do they even have a football team? I have no clue. I have no clue. <laughs> for a million dollars, let's let's try to guess the mascot and let's see how close we can get. It's the Hermits. The Stanford Hermits. Is it Stanford or Stanford? Which one is it's it? It's the one in California, whatever one. Oh. <laughs> well, that's the place to be a hermit. All these New England hermits like I know. Why? I know. Okay, so it's Stanford. Okay, for a million dollars, what's their mascot? The Hermit. That's my guess. The Stanford Hermits. Oh, they, their uh, football team are the Mighty Cardinals. The Cardinals. You know, something that evokes a <laughs> the toughness of a, of a football player. Well, so that's the update on the Hermits book. All righty. I'm really, really hoping to have it out by fall. We'll see. A lot of work to do on it yet, but it's so much fun. I'm having so much fun doing it, and I'm excited for everybody to see it. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Oh, patrons. More stories with Brandon on the next patron episode. So stay tuned for that. Some more Southern Gothic stories. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with more.
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more, go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. You can also purchase music there. You can also purchase the new Stonebreath CD there, Elzik's Farewell, the new art book, and much, much more. You can find Strange Familiars on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. You can find us on Instagram at strangefamiliars, and you can find us on the World Wide Web at strangefamiliars.com. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.